Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. Hello, everybody. It is February the 23rd, lunchtime on the West Coast. And the Supreme Court is back in the news. Uh, It denied Donald Trump's final bid to block his release of tax returns. Uh, It's a... It's a headline from the New York Times. Some people suggest that the, the court wants now to wash its hands of Donald Trump. Um, uh, like so many other things in the Trump age, he seemed to blame the Supreme Court when things were going wrong. Uh, not everyone on the Supreme Court, though, I think wants to wash their hands of Trump. Clarence Thomas, uh, the left's, one of the left's favorite bogeymen apparently is still promoting Trump's voter fraud lies in a dissent for, for this decision. Uh, let's step back a little bit from the day-to-day on the, on the Supreme Court and think of it in, in the longer term. Uh, given the increasing inequality in America, some people believe that the Supreme Court is helping to architect an unjust unequal America. One guy has done a lot of thinking about this, is my guest today on the show. Um, He is uh, Adam Cohen, and he's the author of Supreme Inequality. The book came out last year, uh, and it's just come out in paperback. Adam, let's not talk about Trump. Let's talk about the Supreme Court over the last 50 years. You suggest that it is the first mover, the thing that is, in many ways, architecting a more and more unequal and unjust America. That's right. Uh, First, let me say, Andrew, it's great to be here with you. Uh, Thank you for having me. Um, Yeah, that's exactly right. That's the thesis. Um, uh, If you look at, you know, uh, how people perceive of the Supreme Court, if you think about people think of the Supreme Court, they think of it as a defender of the downtrodden. And, you know, people think about Brown v. Board of Education, cases like that. They think of the Supreme Court integrating the South or standing up for women's rights and and gay rights. Now, it's done a little bit of that. But what's missing from that picture is that the main thing it has done is to side with the rich and powerful over the poor and weak. And that's something that's been true from the beginning. I mean, if you think about the role of the Supreme Court during slave times, it repeatedly ruled for the slaveholders, ruled against slaves who were seeking their freedom, like in the famous Dred Scott case. During Jim Crow, uh, they upheld racial segregation in the South, in the famous case Plessy versus Ferguson. During the progressive era, when progressives in Congress and the state legislators legislatures were passing laws to protect workers and consumers, the Supreme Court was ruling for capitalists again and again. That's been the pattern. And in the era that my book focuses on, which is from the 
beginning of the Nixon court, as we call it, uh, in, in, the, in the late 60s, early 1970s through today, it is consistently ruled for the rich and powerful in a wide variety of cases, everything from campaign finance to education to criminal law. And yes, as you say, I really um, believe it's one of the main reasons we have such an unequal America today. Great children's books open up new worlds for discovery. With Literati Kids, your child can explore uncharted places every month with spellbinding stories handpicked by experts. Literati Kids is a try-before-you-buy subscription book club. Each month, Literati delivers five vibrantly illustrated children's books, bringing the immersive magic of reading right to your home. Literati's age-based book clubs ensure appropriate reads for your budding bookworm, whether they're snuggling with you for story time or letting their imagination roam free. Each book bundle is thoughtfully tailored by education experts with five stories meant to spark new interests and nurture a healthy curiosity. No more sorting through hundreds of titles trying to guess what your child will cherish. Literati sends you the best in children's literature. Choose to purchase the ones they love and send the rest back for free. From art and adventure to tales of compassion, each Literati box follows a new enriching theme. With personalized extras like stickers, surprises, and special guest artwork. Each box is a fun and fresh adventure. Head to literati.com slash keenon for 25% off your first two orders. Select your child's book club and start them on a literary journey like no other. Literati.com slash Keenon is the only place to find 25% off your first two orders of this one-of-a-kind book subscription, the most joyful way to foster a lifelong love of learning. That's literati.com slash Keenon. Adam, I know you attended Harvard Law School. Uh, you graduated a, a few years uh, after my first wife, so I'm all too familiar with what it's like to go to Harvard Law School. Give us a, a, a brief law lesson on this thing that we call the Supreme Court of the United States. Um, what is the law behind it? What is it supposed to do? Very, very briefly. Yeah, it was established to be, you know, we, we, as you know, we have three branches of government, right? We have Congress that passes the laws, the president who uh, executes the laws, and then the courts that oversee that whole process and make sure that it's all being done properly, fairly, in conformity with, uh, with the Constitution. A very early decision, Marver, Marbury versus Madison, uh, the court decided that it had the right to declare laws to be unconstitutional, that it was the final word on constitutionality. So it plays this overseer role. And as we 
think of it, we think of it as being, as I, as I mentioned, really on the side of fairness, making sure that what the other two branches do are fair, is fair and right. Um, so it has a, an enormous amount of power. It's, it's sometimes called the least dangerous branch because, you know, unlike Congress, which can, you know, pass major laws that can really, uh, you know, take away rights from some people and give them to others, unlike the president who has extraordinary powers, including the, um, the power of declaring war, um, the Supreme Court can only really issue these orders, striking things down, ordering people to do things to some extent. But um, it, so in, in, in its individual actions, it may seem not that, quote, dangerous. But, you know, as I've said, I believe that when you put together the totality of its decisions, particularly in the last 50 years, it has done something very dangerous, which is to repeatedly rule for the rich and powerful. So striking down laws like our campaign finance laws that were passed by Congress that would have made for much fairer elections and elections in which poor and working class people had much more of a say in how things went, and then striking down uh, um, rights of unions in a variety of cases, and then at the same time, ruling for wealthy people in, in a, a broad array of cases. Well, well let's, um, let's get into the, the, the details uh, in a few minutes, Adam, on that. Um, but it seems to me from reading your book that you begin with the Warren Court. And in many ways, you are nostalgic. If you could, you would turn back the clock 50 years, because in your view, that was the high point the most just period in, in the history of the Supreme Court. Is that fair? That is fair. And, you know, that is a, a court that really was the high watermark of, of liberalism in American law. So, you know, when we think about some of the, you know, most dramatic things the court did, uh, you know, for what many of us would say is, is good, it happened during the Warren era. So, yes, the desegregation cases that desegregated the South and Brown versus Board of Education. Brown was decided in 1954, one year after Earl Warren became Chief Justice, the start of the Warren Court. Um, it also did things like um, uh, uh, equalize uh, legislative districts uh, throughout the country. So back before the Warren Court, we had very unequal legislative districts. So in state legislatures, for example, uh, a small uh, 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 a small number of rural counties or you know, uh, uh, a bare majority of rural counties that had a small population could outvote all the big cities in a, in a state. So you really had rule by the landed gentry of the rural areas against the interests of the much more populous, uh, you know, poor working class people in the cities. Uh, the, the Warren Court equalized that and said all legislative districts have to have roughly equal. Uh, Adam, uh, and excuse the naivety of this question, but the, the court, like everything else, is political. It reflects the political interests of the people who appoint the court. So isn't it given that in the time of the great society, in the FDR age, um, in the New Deal, you would have a, a court that reflects the values of progressives? And in the post-progressive age, once Nixon comes to power and Reagan, um, and of course, Trump, you're going to have a court that you simply don't like. Is your critique political or constitutional? Well, you know, it, it actually hasn't been so in sync with the politics of the country. That, that's one of the key things. Um, if you think about it, if you look back at the last 50 years, we've had uh, conservative presidents like Nixon and, and Reagan, who you mentioned, but we've had liberal presidents too. We've had Obama, we've had Jimmy Carter, we've had uh, um, uh, Clinton, uh, we've had uh, Democratic majorities in both houses of Congress, we've had 
conservative Republican majorities. But in that 50 years, we've only had a conservative Supreme Court. So as soon as Nixon began appointing his justices, and he got to appoint four justices in the late 1960s and early 1970s, he engineered a right-wing takeover of the court that's been with us for 50 years. But that's, uh, again, a, a tactical issue. I mean, it's the, the, the Republicans are smarter at working the system than the Democrats. Is that true? That's a big part of it, absolutely. And, and in every way we see this, that they appoint younger justices. They, um, they, they play dirty when- it, So your critique is not of the Supreme Court, it's of the, the political machinations of the court and the way in which the Republicans have rigged the court with free market ideologues. Well, it's really both, right? Because yes, they've gotten their conservative free market ideologues on the court, but those uh, free market ideologues have then had to shape the law, right? Because they, they have then uh, come up with rulings that say things like the First Amendment prohibits uh, campaign finance regulation of, of, of various kinds, you know, things like that. So, so it's the political machinations that have led to a really, I think, distortion of American law. Before we get again into the legal weeds, I'd like your take on the cultural ramifications of the court in our social media age. Uh, Ruth uh, Bader Ginsburg, who uh, sadly died last year, has become a, an icon, literally a, a meme in our, in our social media age. And the Kavanaugh hearings and even the Clarence Thomas hearings have acquired a kind of soap opera quality in, in American cultural and political life. Is that a problem? No, I don't think it is a problem. In some ways, I think it's actually a very good thing because the, the problem has been traditionally that people don't know what the Supreme Court does that people don't follow it. It's very, you know, it, it operates behind the scenes. We don't really get to know the justices well. Um, a lot of its rulings are very arcane. I think the more that personality-driven narratives like the uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, you know, uh, uh, iconography is good to the extent that it gets people focused on what the court is doing. And remember, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was almost always a dissenter. You know, she, she the values that we praise her for, she so often lost. So the but would you, uh, I mean, some people say, well, you would say that about Ginsburg. What about Thomas say? I mean, does he have the same right as Ginsburg to be outrageous, eccentric, and differ from uh, stand out and stick to his principles? I'm all in favor of people standing out and sticking to their principles, but the problem is that his principles are really awful principles. They're principles that really- Yeah, but you would say, I mean, I agree with you, Adam. I'm, I'm, I'm not a big fan of, of, of Thomas, but if we had a conservative on the show, they would say, well, you would say that you, because you stand on, 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 on the other side of the political debate. I, I, I assume you would accept that a, a, a Thomas has the right to be on the court. Well, absolutely. The problem, though, is that we have now six very right-wing justices who are not in sync with the thinking of the people and are doing very anti-democratic things. Like, you know, I, I keep coming back to campaign finance because it's such a critical thing. It's the reason that the wealthy, powerful special interests control our political system. Well, Congress has passed laws that would limit the role of money in politics and right-wingers on the Supreme Court strike them down. So that's, that's just to my mind. I, I, um, I think that's an interesting point. And I, in some ways it's obviously true. But on the other hand, in the last election, the Democrats raised more money than the Republicans. 
and at least where I am on the uh, on the West Coast in San Francisco, the money is on the left rather than on the right. So um, inequality is a more complex thing than it sometimes appears. Is that fair? That's true, but you know, I would also caution against just seeing that uh, seeing it as a Republican versus Democratic thing, because you know uh, there are many issues on which the Democrats are probably not as progressive as they would be because they're beholden to Wall Street money and money from employers. So um, the idea that just because the Democrats win an election that that means that the poor and working class are going to win not necessarily true. Adam, we had uh, last week, um, I'm sure you're familiar with her work, Heather McGee. She has a wonderful new book out called The Sum of Us, which is really a book about the, the wrecking of the American state, of the public sphere. Uh, it focuses on race and racism, but there's a lot more to it than that. Is that, in your view, the great crime of the last 50 years of the Supreme Court? is it's allowed for the pillaging of the public sphere of the destruction um, of, uh, of the state and of public services? I think that's a, a big part of it. Yes, absolutely. Um, and, and, but, but, you know, as I say, the way I tend to view it more is that it has unbalanced the scale between rich and poor in America. And as I see it, the, the big tragedy that we're dealing with in America right now is inequality, is levels of income inequality and wealth inequality, unlike any we've seen since you know the Great Depression. And people wonder, where does it come from? Why do the billionaires and the plutocrats and people who have a lot of money in the stock market, why are they so rich? And why are other people scraping by on a minimum wage that has not been raised you know, in, in 15 years? It's because of the Supreme Court. And that inequality is, to me, the defining aspect of America today. Adam, uh, alongside the Supreme Court news, one other piece of news today is that Elon Musk, who yesterday was the world's richest man, today I think he's the second richest man, lost $15 billion in a day after some speculative remarks about Bitcoin. Um, to me, that's outrageous. The idea that any single individual could lose $15 billion in a day is, is ludicrous. Uh, Bezos has done the same thing. How does that reflect on the Supreme Court? What has the Supreme Court done over the last 50 years to enable this transformation of the American economy into a casino? Well, Again, it's really just increased this gap so that we have people like Elon Musk who are just so unbelievably wealthy compared to other Americans. And that's through a variety of, of different things. Um, the, the campaign finance rulings um, are absolutely tied to um, the Trump tax cuts and the Bush tax cuts. The reason we have such low taxes on the wealthy, and they used to be a lot higher, um, is because people with money demanded from Congress uh, lower taxes on the rich and got them. So we're, we're seeing that on the other end of the- uh, but That does an impact on, on Musk's 15 billion. That's a, a, an architectural quality of uh, early 21st century American capitalism, which has nothing to do with tax policy. Well, we used to have much higher taxes on people. They, we had taxes on, on income that went as high as 90%. And the idea that we have a capital gains tax now that's 15% is outrageous. People are being taxed so much less 
on their capital gains than when you and I like go to a job every day and, and make a salary. So that that part's horrible. Um, and then also the Supreme Court has weakened education in this country. So people at the bottom, poor kids who want to get an education so that they can get a start in life and do well. We, we have terrible schools in our inner cities. And a lot of the reason for that is because the Supreme Court has ruled that uh, there's no requirement to have equal funding between rich and poor school districts. There's no requirement to have integration across urban suburban lines. So they've created two classes in America by their rulings in the last 50 years. Yeah, I think your, your argument is very provocative in that area. We had Derek W. Black on the show, an expert in uh, local schools who, who, who certainly echoes what you're saying. But again, it comes back to this pillaging of the state. The, the way in which the law has allowed for the destruction of, of, of the public sphere, whether it's in education. Another area that um, I, I'm interested in your, in your take um, is uh, the environment. Um, we had Erin Brockovich on the show, her new book, Superman's Not Coming, about the destruction of, the, of, of, of water in the United States. How has the impact of the Supreme Court in the last 50 years compounded the environmental crisis in this country? It has in general been on the wrong side of environmental cases as, as, as I see it. Um, it has weakened the power of the EPA and other, uh, other parts of government to regulate pollution. Um, by in, very, in, in many cases, uh, that, that's a matter of statutory interpretation, the way in which, in which the court has read statutes. But it, it's read statutes in ways that allow polluters to pollute a great deal. And absolutely, uh, the court has been uh, a contributing factor to global warming. What about when it comes to uh, the organization of labor, Adam? Uh, we had Sarah Horowitz on the show, long-term labor organizer. Her grandfather was a very distinguished American early 20th century unionist. Has the Supreme Court essentially undermined the right of labor to organize? Absolutely. You know, the original National Labor Relations Act that was passed during the New Deal was very strongly pro-union and made clear that Congress wanted unions to be strong and saw them as being good for all of society, not just for the workers they represented. Very quickly, the Supreme Court interpreted some key aspects of that law to say, I mean, the, the main thing they did was they said that when, when workers go out on strike, they can be replaced. So immediately, the Supreme Court just eviscerated the rights of the National Labor Relations Act, because when people realize they can be replaced if they go out on strike, they're much less likely to go out on strike. In recent years, they've done other things. There was a case in the 90s that was just terrible, where the court ruled that unions have very little right of access to a workplace. So in many cases, uh, unions literally cannot get to the site of workers in order to talk to them about why they should join a union. Um, even though um, you know they should have that access. So in case after case, the court has done that. And then in a particularly infamous case uh, a few years ago, the court uh, said that, uh, uh, that, that uh, they basically uh, dealt a death blow to public sector unions by giving people a First Amendment right not to join a public sector union, even if they were in the bargaining unit that it represented. And there used to be uh, a doctrine that was well established that if you were in... In a, in, a, in, a, in a job that was represented by a public sector union, you didn't have to join the union, but you had to pay a fair amount of fees because the union was representing you in negotiations uh, with your employer. The Supreme Court struck that requirement down 
And that means that right now we have a lot of free riders, people in the public sector who are not joining their unions and it could really end up um, you know, decimating the public sector uh, part of the union movement, which is now larger than the private sector. Uh, so uh, yeah, and what about the, um, the rights uh, of workers in the new economy? Uh, the, the, the movie No Man Land's just come out. Jessica Bruder's been on the show recently. Uh, work is changing dramatically in America. People have fewer and fewer full-time jobs. Has the court ruled on the idea of the relationship between a worker and the company and these ongoing disputes, say, between Uber drivers and Uber about whether Uber has a responsibility to give them traditional rights? Yeah, that hasn't been an area that they've gotten into greatly. They will, though. I mean, that's a case that's absolutely headed there. Um, um, but and I, I think based on past experience, we can say that they will um, uh, side with the owners of capital, with the people who employ the workers, not with the workers, would be my guess. Uh, what about when it comes to law, uh, uh, Adam? We've had a, an awful lot of shows about uh, the prison system in this country. We had Elliot Young on. Uh, we've had shows about uh, black on black uh, black violence and the the toll of violence on on black America uh, with Elliot Curry, lots and lots of shows about race and the the endemic racism in America, Overground Railroad about blacks' rights to travel in America. Uh, given Black Lives Matter, um, to what extent has the decisions of the Supreme Court over the last fifty years fueled? racial unrest and injustice in this country. You begin your book in that area uh, with an excellent summary, I thought. Yeah, thank you. Um, yes, um, the, the court, there was that brief moment, the Warren era, as we've discussed, where the court was desegregating uh, segregated institutions. It did a big flip in the 80s and 90s, and now very much is on the side of uh, employers who discriminate and and uh, and also is a major contributed contributor to the over-incarceration that we have now in, in their criminal justice rulings. But in all this, actually, I think we're poised for something much bigger is, is likely coming. Chief Justice Roberts has been saying for a long time that he really opposes any use of race uh, Virtually any use of race as a as a as a remedy for past wrongs, we are getting very close, I believe, to a ruling from the Supreme Court striking down large swaths of, of affirmative action. And you know, there's this case against Harvard uh, brought by Asian American students, um, which may well be on its way to the Supreme Court. Um, the court could use that to say that the kind of affirmative action that has become extremely mainstream in our society now that major corporations support, that major universities support, uh, violates the Constitution. So um, they've done a lot of, uh, I would say, negative stuff around race, around prisons and over-incarceration. I think there's more to come, particularly with the six to three conservative majority in place now. What about shaping America itself? Of course, America has historically defined itself as a country of immigrants, of a of relatively open border policy. We had Maria Inahosa, the very distinguished NPR journalist on, with her new book, Once I Was You, about the discrimination against immigrants in this country. How has the decisions of the Supreme Court created a, a fortress-style culture in this country to discriminate against immigrants, thereby, again, compounding inequality? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, things like um, upholding the uh, the Muslim ban, which the court did, and uh, I, I would say in general, it has not been seen as uh, uh, a body that's been particularly um, uh, uh, in favor of immigrants' rights. Um, uh, and I think a lot of that is, you know, is, is tied to these other issues that, in general, they just um, almost reflexively are on the side of uh, of the. The rich and powerful, and, uh, and we're seeing that in every area: employment law, uh, criminal law, everywhere. Across the board, race, employment, yep. environment, everything works against the poor and in favor of the rich, thereby compounding the inequalities. Uh, and America is, I think, today perhaps as as as, it, un, as unequal as as it's ever been in its history, and as unequal as many countries in the world. We had. Um, Adam, we had the Stanford, uh, the Stanford historian Walter Scheidel on the show, uh, who wrote a big book about inequality. He suggests that in history, the only way in which uh, countries like America with this kind of inequality ever get changed is either through civil war or war or some sort of catastrophe. Do you believe really that the Supreme Court can change all this, uh, that we don't need a, a, a bigger political revolution, a war, a civil war, some other kind of catastrophe, because this, the stuff that you're pointing out is so profound and so deeply disturbing. Yeah, no, it's it's a great question. But, you know, I would say, you know, I, I talk in the book about the counterfactual. Let's go back to 1968 when this right-wing court was developed. Suppose it hadn't developed this way. Suppose the the liberals had had one more vote on the court because so many decisions in the last 50 years have been five to four. We would have, I'm convinced, a very different America. Um, in education, I mentioned that case where the Supreme Court ruled, they upheld unequal funding between rich and poor school districts. They were one vote away, though, from saying that every school district in the state had to have equal funding. The poor kids had to get the same amount of money as the rich kids. They were one vote away from saying the following year, uh, in 1974, that we could have busing across urban suburban lines to ensure that all of the schools in a metropolitan area had equal racial composition. And that was- So it really got that close. One vote could have changed all of history. That you're, you're in a funny kind of way, in spite of your quite radical critique of the Supreme Court, you still believe in the institution. You still have faith in the system. Well, except that it's been so corrupted. But yes, I, that's why I do say if we'd had the Warren Court for the last 50 years rather than the right-wing court that we have, I think we would have a very different America. We would have had real limits on campaign finance because Congress passed them. If we had that, we would have different tax policy across the board. We'd have different uh, prison policies. In every area, we've had, we'd have stronger unions. I think it absolutely would make a difference. I, I don't believe we need a revolution, but it's frustrating that a system that the founders set up that I think is in many ways, you know, eminently good, um, has really been perverted in the last 50 years by the court. Finally, Adam, uh, as I suggested at the beginning, you went to Harvard Law School. Um, and so many of our leaders seem to have either gone to Harvard or Yale, Obama, Clinton, and so many others. Um, is there too much law in American society? Uh, is the problem too many lawyers, too much law? 
And perhaps if it came to inequality, other countries, the Scandinavian model, the German model, they simply don't have so many lawyers. Is law itself the problem? I don't think so. And that's one reason I went to law school. I went to law school with that idea of the Warren Court in mind, because that was what I grew up with. And I believe if we had had a more progressive Supreme Court and a different vision of the law, um, lawyers would be doing a lot of good in this country. They did in the 60s. They would be making sure that prisons and mental hospitals were, you know, were kind and, and well run. They would make sure that, you know, people weren't sent to prison when they were, you know, innocent. They would be making sure that, you know, that, that our elections ran fairly and voters had a chance to uh, be represented uh, uh, in, in elections properly. I think lawyers are actually, you know, can be an important part of the solution, but the problem is that, that right-wing uh, groups have gotten control of the court, the Supreme Court, the very top of the legal system, and it's perverted everything all the way down. Well, there you have it. Uh, Adam's uh, book, which came out last year, is is out this week in paperback, Supreme Inequality, uh, the Supreme Court's 50-year battle for a more unjust America. For all its negative con uh, connotations, I was going to say constitutions, for all its negative connotations, he still remains a believer in the American system, which is good, which is encouraging. Uh, Adam, I know you're in Manhattan at the moment in these strange times. Uh, in addition to your new, well, your, your book out in paperback, what else should people be reading? Well, there's one book I really want to plug. I happened to be on a panel last week with, with its author, who I didn't know before that, but it's called Pure America, Eugenics and the Making of Modern Virginia. And I myself had written another book about eugenics. So we were having a conversation. What about is eugenics? Um, eugenics is the idea that we can, uh, by stopping the, quote, wrong people from reproducing and encouraging the, quote, right people to reproduce more, we can create a better human race. And it was widespread in America. In the 1920s, a majority of states had eugenic sterilization laws. And the Supreme Court that we're talking about upheld eugenic sterilization uh, in, in a 1927 case, which is actually what my last book is about. So the Supreme Court said absolutely fine for the state of Virginia and to sterilize people if it means getting a better gene pool for us. So uh, terrible, terrible policy. Um, and anyway, this, the author of this book, Elizabeth Catt, does a great job of talking about the history of eugenics in Virginia and how we can still see remnants of its eugenic past in Virginia today. Interesting subject. I think with new technologies like CRISPR, we've had those on the show. Eventually, the Supreme Court will have to We'll have to judge on 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 which technologies can and can't be used to uh, to, to to reinvent uh, human biology and and perhaps even uh, our species. So important stuff, uh, Adam. I want to thank you. Congratulations on the new paperback, and we'll have you back on the show to see if if uh, the Supreme Court can eventually turn over a new leaf and rather than compounding inequality, begin to address it. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. 
Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at Lit Hub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.